0: Listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast Unsolved Murders, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Unsolved Murders to ensure you don't miss out on any of history's most shocking real-life cold cases. Thanks for listening to Unsolved Murders, and we'll see you on Spotify.
1: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that listeners may find offensive or distressing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
2: Just leave me alone. I'm begging you.
3: We can't help you unless you tell us the truth.
2: I want to save my life for my wife's sake
3: she doesn't deserve this just tell us the truth
2: if i tell you the truth will you promise to send me to a hospital for the insane
3: i can't promise you anything but i want you to get this off your mind tell us the truth
2: you would not harm an insane man sure judge sutton will acquit me if i tell the truth
3: so you're ready to be honest with us (sighs) yes now on the evening of june 9th you are staying with reverend ewing and his family that's right
2: We took supper, and then I went with him to church. And after that? We went directly home. I visited with the Reverend and his wife until 11 or 11.30. Then I tried to go to bed. I undressed and got into bed, but I couldn't sleep. I felt restless. Then I heard a strange sound like like a windmill. I opened the balcony door and went outside, but I couldn't find the source of the noise. I saw nothing. So what did you do about it? I tried to go back to sleep, but I couldn't. Head felt hot. I wanted to go for a walk to get some fresh air. Maybe then I would stop feeling so sick. So I got dressed and went outside. I walked over to the Presbyterian church. I was working on a sermon based on an Old Testament text. Which text? Ezekiel 9, slay utterly. I didn't intend to walk any farther, but a voice told me to go on. Whose voice? The voice of God. He commanded me to slay utterly. I didn't know where I was going, but I wandered to the end of the street where I saw a long shadow leading up to a house. A shadow? Yes. I became the shadow's hunter, and I followed it to the house. I didn't know who lived there, but God's voice urged me on, commanding me to slay utterly. As I stumbled in the darkness looking for the shadow, I saw an axe. God commanded me to follow the shadow around the house to the front door. The voice of the Lord said, Go in and do as I tell you, slay utterly. And so I promised him, Yes, Lord, I will. I entered the house and there was darkness. But then I found a light. Just like the Bible said, there was a light.
3: Is that when you found the lamp?
2: Yes. As I carried the lamp, the voice told me to climb higher I climbed up the stairs and felt I was climbing Jacob's ladder. I walked through the middle room into a further room, and I came upon some children lying there. Suffer the little children to come unto me, says the Lord. They are coming, Lord, I said, and I did what God wanted me to do. I slayed utterly. After I killed the children, I moved on to the parents' bedroom. The voice still whispered, I was possessed by an impulse I could not control. I raised the axe and I slayed utterly. I wanted to rest, to be done with it. I went to the bedroom downstairs, not knowing it was occupied, and found two children lying in bed. More work yet, God told me. Before I knew what I was doing, I raised my axe a final time. I slayed utterly.
0: This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on the Velisca Axe Murders. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, spelled parcast.com, spelled P A R C A S T.com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie.
1: And I'm your host, Carter Roy.
0: On the night of June 9, 1912, the quiet town of Villisca was forever changed by the horrific axe murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls.
1: The victims were Joe Moore, his wife Sarah, and their four children, Herman, age 11, Catherine, age 10, Arthur, age 7, and Paul, age 5.
0: Also killed were young Catherine Moore's friends, Ina Mae Stillinger, age 8, and Lena Gertrude Stillinger, age 12, who were sleeping over on the night of the murders.
1: Over the next five years, many would come under suspicion for the murders, including a transient, an army deserter, and a prominent local banker.
0: However, the most shocking suspect of all might be the Presbyterian minister who confessed to the investigators that God had commanded him to slay utterly. But did he really commit the murders? Let's find out. Before the murders, Villisca was a peaceful town. Joe Moore was a well-liked
1: member of the Villisca community.
0: He spent years working as a manager at a farm equipment store in the center of town. His employer was F.F. Jones, a wealthy Methodist, and one of Velisca's most prominent residents.
1: By 1912, F.F. Jones had served three terms in the Iowa House of Representatives. An ambitious man, he was planning a run for the state Senate.
0: Joe Moore was F.F. Jones' best salesman, and the two got along well, until they had a falling out over Moore's salary.
1: Joe Moore quit F.F. Jones' shop and started his own farm equipment store on the other side of the town square, selling deer farming equipment exclusively. The shop was a success.
0: Meaning Joe took some business away from F.F. Jones' store.
1: F.F. Well, was so angry at Joe, rumor was that he would cross the other side of the street to avoid
0: him if they met. On the night of the murders, the Villisca Presbyterian Church held its annual Children's Day production. The Moore Children and the Stillinger Girls performed in the play.
1: Watching the children perform was Reverend George Lynn Jacqueline Kelly, a visiting minister.
0: The same minister who would later confess to murdering them. Did Kelly choose the Moore Children as his victims while watching them in the play?
1: It's possible, but we'll return to Kelly soon enough.
0: After the performance ended, the Moore family and the Stillinger girls walked back to the Moore's home in darkness. The street lights were out due to an ongoing fight between the city council and the power plant.
1: After everyone went to sleep, the killer struck.
0: The murderer used Joe's own ax from his yard. He entered through the unlocked front door and crept up the creaky stairs to Joe and Sarah's bedroom. He smashed their heads in with the axe, swinging with such force that he left marks in the ceiling.
1: The killer then moved to the children's bedroom. Herman, Catherine, Arthur, and Paul were all killed in the beds where they slept. Each child was bludgeoned in the head with the axe.
0: The killer then moved downstairs to Ina May and Lena Stillinger's bedroom. As he killed Ina May with a blow to the head, 12-year-old Lena began to wake up.
1: The murderer then quickly killed Lena with several axe blows to the head.
0: By the time the killer was done, both girls were unrecognizable.
1: The Stillinger girls' bodies were found early the next morning by Joe's next-door neighbor, Mary, and his brother, Ross. Ross immediately fetched Hank Horton, the town marshal who found the bodies of Joe, Sarah, and the Moore children.
3: What
4: is it? What did you find?
1: My God.
3: There's someone murdered in every bed.
0: Horton brought several doctors, including the coroner, Dr. Lindquist, to the crime scene. Lindquist noticed and recorded many odd details about the crime scene.
1: Joe's axe had been left in the downstairs bedroom with the Stillinger girls. Their crushed heads had been covered with the Moore children's clothing.
0: All the glass in the house had been covered with dark pieces of clothing. Most notably, a ripped skirt that covered the mirror in the Stillinger girls' bedroom. Almost as if the killer was scared that the spirits of the murdered children were watching him.
1: At the foot of the bed was a lamp with its glass chimney removed. The missing chimney was found hidden under a dresser.
0: But why remove the chimney? What's the point?
1: The investigators had no idea. Dr. Lindquist also noticed a heavy slab of bacon on the bedroom floor.
0: As a warning to our listeners, the upcoming scene includes graphic and disturbing content. Listeners should proceed with caution.
3: I can't understand it. What's the point of the bacon?
5: I have an idea, but I'm not sure you want to know.
3: Oh, just tell me your theory.
5: The older girl's undergarments have been removed, and I think he positioned her body like that purposely so he could see everything. And the bacon's greasy, so he used it while looking at her.
1: Oh, God. Dr. Linquist also found a length of chain in the downstairs bedroom, a bloody shoe by Joe's bedside that indicated the killer had gone back to finish him off, and a bowl of bloody water in the
0: kitchen where the killer washed up. Unfortunately, Dr. Lindquist didn't have long to look at the crime scene. Word spread quickly throughout Villisca about the murders, and a mob soon formed.
1: They stampeded past investigators through the house, stealing and destroying evidence as they gawked at the murder victims. The sheriff called the National Guard to protect the crime
0: scene. F.F. Jones put his animosity towards Joe Moore aside and tried to help the investigation out as best he could. He offered to pay for the prized bloodhounds brought in from Nebraska.
1: The Bloodhounds led investigators and a curious mob of residents down to the Nottaway River, but lost the trail at the river's edge. Veliskans formed armed gangs to search for the killer,
0: but they found no one.
1: Many of the homeless living in encampments on Veliska's outskirts fled the town after they heard about the killings. They were fearful one of them would be arrested as a scapegoat.
0: And it wasn't long before a transient man was turned over to the sheriff.
1: At 6 a.m. on Monday, June 10th of 1912, a clean-shaven man in a brown suit approached Thomas Dyer, head of a team of railroad construction workers in Creston, Iowa. The man in the brown suit introduced himself as Andy Sawyer and explained he was looking for work. His shoes were splattered with mud and his pants were soaked with water.
0: Well that sounds suspicious.
1: Especially since Bloodhounds traced the killer steps to the Nottaway River, but Dyer needed another man for his crew and took him on. He soon regretted it. Dyer's crew quickly took a dislike to the newcomer. He slept fully dressed as if always ready to make a quick getaway. He kept an axe by the side of his bed, and he was obsessed with the Vallisca murders.
2: Any news on those axe murders in Beliska?
1: Jesus, Sawyer, can you talk about nothing else?
2: Oh, I was just wondering if they found the killer.
4: No idea. Mm,
2: too bad.
4: Why do you care so much?
2: Imagine those poor little children, all hacked to death. I can't get it out of my mind.
4: Might be easier to get off your mind if you stop sleeping with an axe by your bed. Will you
2: stop pestering me?
4: I didn't mean any harm. I don't want company. Leave me
2: alone. <laughs>
1: As if Sawyer's behavior wasn't unsettling enough, he himself told a suspicious story to Dyer's son, J.R., as they were driving through Vallisca.
2: Hey, JR, want to see something interesting? Like what? I can show you how the axe killer escaped. What? Where? He jumped over that manure box over there and crossed the railroad tracks. You see it?
5: Yeah, and I can see footprints too. And right by that old tree over there? That's where the killer stepped into the river. Mm, How do you know all this, Sawyer? I was in Villisca on Sunday night. I left town after I heard about the murders. That why you joined us in Creston? They were
2: ready to arrest anybody, and I didn't want to be the one they blamed.
1: Sawyer's behavior made Dyer suspect that he might actually be the axe murderer,
0: so he turned Sawyer into the sheriff. But as it turned out, Sawyer had an alibi for the night of the murders.
3: I'm afraid you got the wrong man. Sawyer isn't your killer. What makes you so sure? I arrested Sawyer for vagrancy. Put him on the train to get him out of town myself. And when was that? About 11.30 p.m. on June 9th. So he couldn't have made
1: it to Villisca in time to commit the murders.
0: In addition to Andy Sawyer, the investigators arrested and questioned many local transients.
1: But with no evidence that any of them were the killer, the police were forced to release them all.
0: And so, two years passed with no suspects arrested or prosecuted. The murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls began to fade from public consciousness.
1: But the victims' families were not about to let their loved ones' tragic fate pass into obscurity. Joe Moore's brother, Ross, Joe's father-in-law, John Montgomery, and the Stillinger girl's father, Joe Stillinger, raised money and continued to badger investigators so they wouldn't forget about the case.
0: In 1914, the state of Iowa used the money raised by the victims' families to hire an investigator from the Burns Detective Agency.
1: Well, the Burns Detective Agency had been founded only a few years earlier, in 1909, by William Burns, a man Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called America's Sherlock Holmes.
0: In April of 1914, James N. Wilkerson arrived in Villisca. He initially claimed he was a land agent.
1: But Wilkerson wasn't really a Texas land agent. After two months, he knocked on the door of Ross's drugstore and revealed his true identity. Mr. Wilkerson, this is a surprise.
5: Evening, Mr. Moore. There's something I need to discuss with you.
4: Is this about that train trip? I really don't think I want to be buying any more land right now.
5: There's no train trip. What are you talking about? I'm not a Texas land agent. I'm from the Burns Detective Agency in Kansas. The state of Iowa hired me to find your brother's killer.
4: You're pulling my leg.
5: I apologize for the subterfuge. I didn't want the murderer to suspect me.
4: Two years since my brother was murdered in cold blood, and the police don't even have a suspect. What makes you different?
5: With all due respect to your local sheriff, he's wasting his time investigating hobos when the real killer was right under his nose.
4: You're saying you have a suspect?
5: Well, I have more than a suspect. I know the identity of the killer. Out with it! Who is it? Frank
1: Jones. Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
0: And now, back to the story.
1: Before Wilkerson's investigation, no one had seriously considered a local townsperson had committed the murders, let alone such a distinguished member of the town as F.F. Jones.
0: But F.F. Jones was already in his late 50s when the murders took place in 1912. Did Wilkerson really think FF Jones was in good enough health to bash eight victims' heads in with an axe?
1: Wilkerson didn't think that F.F. killed the Moores and the Stillinger girls himself. Instead, he believed that F.F. Jones had used his substantial wealth to hire a killer.
0: But F.F. Jones was a rising political star. Why would he be willing to risk his career to commit murder?
1: Well, don't forget how bitter F.F. allegedly was when Joe Moore quit and took his John Deere Plough franchise with him to his new store. Maybe he was angry about how much business Joe was stealing from him.
0: Uh, Maybe. But that doesn't seem like a believable reason to murder Joe Moore, his entire family, and the two little Stillinger girls.
1: F.F. had a much more personal reason to be furious with Joe Moore. It involved his son, Albert Jones, and his daughter-in-law, Donna Bentley. I have a guess where this is going. F.F. Jones was strict, ambitious, intelligent, and, according to some, incredibly arrogant. His son, Albert, was another matter entirely.
0: Albert was generally considered by many of the townsfolk to be a meek man of no great intelligence in comparison to his domineering and clever father.
1: In 1910, Albert married a schoolteacher named Donna Bentley. She was an outgoing local beauty who received quite a lot of attention from men in the town.
0: Even after her marriage?
1: Especially after her marriage. In 1912, the year of the murders, she was getting calls from at least three different men. Albert Jones, please. Putting you through. Hello. Donna, my darling, is
2: Albert home?
6: No, he'll be gone the rest of the day.
2: Then shall I come and keep you from getting lonely?
6: How kind of you. I'd like that very much.
2: I'll see you in half an hour. I'll be
6: waiting. It seems
0: awfully brazen for Donna to arrange her affairs by telephone. What if the operators were listening in?
1: Donna clearly didn't care. But the women working in the telephone office were, in fact, listening in.
7: Donna Jones had another gentleman caller today. It's unseemly. Look at that. Switchboard light is on in Albert Jones's house. Another one? How may I connect your call? Hello? No. Come on. I think Stop. someone knocked the phone. Calm
0: down, Albert. Albert Jones returned home early one day and found one of Donna's gentleman callers. During the ensuing scuffle, one of the men knocked the phone off of its hook.
1: Which meant the women running the telephone switchboard overheard everything.
5: Just
4: calm down, Albert.
5: You think I'll let you make a cuckold of me? I wouldn't
4: be the only one. What was that? Nothing. There's nothing going on. Don and I were just having pleasant conversations.
5: Oh, you think I'm a fool?
4: Albert put down the gun. Put down the gun. You
5: get the hell out of my house. If I ever catch you around these parts again, I'll... Oh my god.
7: You stupid son of a bitch. You shot my goddamn thumb off. You are not going to believe what I just overheard.
1: The women working the telephones gossiped to their friends, who told others in turn. So Donna's dalliances were well known to the Veliscan community.
0: But what does Albert Jones' domestic drama have to do with Joe Moore?
1: Joe was Donna Jones' most frequent caller.
0: You think Joe Moore and Donna Jones were having an affair?
1: Hmm, seems naive to believe otherwise.
0: If F.F. Jones knew Joe was having an affair with his son's wife, that's a powerful motive to commit murder. That's exactly what Detective Wilkerson thought.
1: After telling Joe's brother Ross his theory about F.F., in 1914, Wilkerson spent the next two years building up evidence to support his case.
0: Meanwhile, word spread through the community that F.F. Jones was a suspect.
1: F.F. Well, did his best to ignore the rumors. He'd successfully obtained a seat in the Iowa State Senate as a Republican. In 1916, he was running for re-election.
0: Right before the primaries, Wilkerson finally made his first move. A
1: story appeared in the local newspaper announcing that the murders had been solved. The story claimed an important community member, which everyone knew meant Frank Jones, had paid a man named Blackie Mansfield to kill the Moors and the Stillinger girls.
0: Wait a minute, who's Blackie Mansfield?
1: Blackie Mansfield was really William Mansfield, a man who had spent time in prison for deserting the army.
0: How'd he earn the nickname?
1: Interestingly enough, Blackie wasn't even a name Mansfield knew about. The reporter who collaborated with Wilkerson to write the article blaming F.F. Jones and Mansfield was a man by the name of Jack Boyle. Boyle was both a reporter and a screenwriter. He published a series of fictional stories about a jewel thief called Boston Blackie, and he bestowed that fictional nickname on Mansfield when he wrote the article.
0: It seems rather irresponsible to go around making up nicknames for real people.
1: Especially considering the damage that nickname did. Residents of Vallisca took the nickname Blackie to mean that Blackie Mansfield was actually black. For years following the publication of the article, it was dangerous for African Americans to stay in Vallisca past sundown, and the few black families that were living in Vallisca at the time were forced out of town.
0: That's awful. And did Wilkerson even have any evidence linking Mansfield to F.F. Jones?
1: He only had circumstantial evidence. The article written by Wilkerson and Boyle claimed that F.F. found Mansfield while he was working on a street paving crew in Villisca in 1911.
2: Thanks for meeting with me in private, Mr. Mansfield. What do you want? I've heard about your talents, and I have a man I need you to uh, take care of. How much is it worth to you? Don't worry, Mansfield. Money isn't an issue. Here, see if this is to your liking. And they'll be double that when you finish the job.
3: I ain't whacking anybody right now. If I do it while I'm here on this gig, the cops might suspect me. I'll come back in a year.
0: Take the time you need, but get it done. Wilkerson really believed that F.F. Jones hired Mansfield in 1911 so that he could murder the Moors a full year later in 1912?
1: Uh, It may seem a bit far-fetched, but Wilkerson had one more damning piece of circumstantial evidence against Mansfield. In 1914, two years after the Villisca killings, Mansfield's wife, her parents, and his child were murdered. And the weapon used by the killer?
0: Let me guess. An axe.
1: Exactly. And Mansfield was the main suspect in the murders.
0: So Wilkerson thought Mansfield was some kind of serial killer for hire?
1: Exactly. Wilkerson managed to convince both the townspeople and the local authorities that Mansfield had been hired by F.F. Jones to kill the Moors. In June of 1916, Wilkerson and investigators arrested Mansfield at a meatpacking factory in Kansas, but he wouldn't confess. So, they tried to force a confession out of him.
0: They dangled him off a Kansas bridge by his ankles.
5: Help! Help! Someone help me! We know you killed the Moors. We know you were there that Sunday night. Tell us the truth. I didn't do it, I swear! Just put me down!
0: Since Mansfield wouldn't confess to the axe murders, even with his own life in peril, the authorities decided to use legal and proper means to try his case. Mansfield's case went before a grand jury in July of 1916.
1: The grand jury met for several days. Everyone expected Mansfield to be indicted for murder. Instead, the jury came back with a result that shocked both Wilkerson and the town of Veliska.
0: The jury returned with a no true bill.
1: So what does that mean?
0: The grand jury didn't feel that there was enough evidence to indict William Mansfield, so instead of standing trial for murder, Mansfield walked away a free man.
1: This was a devastating blow to Wilkerson and his supporters, who were convinced Mansfield was the killer F.F. Jones hired.
0: But when Wilkerson learned that one of the jurors was a cashier at F.F. Jones's bank, he spread rumors throughout Villisca that F.F. Jones had used his proxies on the grand jury to get Mansfield off.
1: Wilkerson began holding public meetings in Velisca to stir up public anger and convince Veliskans that F.F. was guilty.
5: I can prove that F.F. Jones hired Blackie Mansfield to commit the murders. The evidence is right here in my pocket. Now, do we want to elect a man for state senate whose dirty money paid for an axe murderer to kill the Moore family?
1: Horrified that Wilkerson was ruining his political career, FF sued him for slander.
0: The courthouse was so packed with people that there weren't enough seats.
1: FF Jones's lawyers thought he had an easy case for slander. There were many witnesses who could testify that Wilkerson had accused FF Jones of hiring Mansfield to murder the Moors.
0: But Wilkerson turned the case on its head. He hired a top lawyer named Ed Mitchell, who set out to turn F.F. F. Jones' straightforward slander trial against Wilkerson into a murder trial against F.F. F. Jones by introducing several surprise witnesses.
7: It was 1911. My husband and I were camping by the Nottoway River. I went to gather wood by the slaughterhouse and I came upon three men talking.
4: What were they talking about?
7: Well. The older man with the beard was talking about withdrawing money from the bank and getting someone out of the way.
4: And was that man Frank Jones?
6: He sure looked like him.
4: Tell the court what you saw that Saturday.
6: The day before the murders, I saw three men walk past Joe Moore's house two times, and one of those men was Blackie Mansfield.
4: (gasps) Did you see anyone else?
6: Later that night, my car broke down. My friends and I were walking home through the vacant lot behind the Moores house, and we saw those three strange men again. So we hid behind the plum bushes to wait for them to leave. But instead of leaving, they stopped behind the Moores house, and two more men joined them.
4: Who were those men?
6: Bert McCall and F. F. Jones.
4: What did the men talk about?
6: I don't remember everything, but I remember this clear as day. F.F. Jones said, get Joe, and the rest will be easy.
5: Can you tell the court about this conversation you overheard? Uh, Frank Jones was talking to his son, Albert, and, and Bert McCall. They wanted to take care of Wilkerson.
0: <gasps> Sounds like Wilkerson found some fairly
1: convincing evidence. The jury certainly believes so. They found Wilkerson not liable
0: for slander which means that they thought Wilkerson was telling the truth about F.F. Jones hiring Blackie Mansfield. So a verdict in favor of Wilkerson was basically an indirect guilty verdict for F.F. Jones.
1: Wilkerson, with the support of many of the townspeople in Villisca, was able to convince the local authorities to hold another grand jury investigation on Mansfield the following year in 1917.
0: But Mansfield was prepared with an alibi. At the time of the murders, he had been an employee of the Greer Provisioning Company in Illinois, 500 miles away from Villisca, and he had the paperwork to prove it.
1: This payroll had been signed every day he worked by a payroll clerk. So both Mansfield's paperwork and the testimony of the other employees definitively showed he was in Illinois, not Iowa, during the murders.
0: When questioned by the Attorney General, the same witnesses who had been so forthcoming to Wilkerson about seeing Mansfield and F.F. Jones at the time of the murders became vague and evasive. Possibly because now they were afraid of perjuring themselves by lying in court.
1: The grand jury refused to indict Mansfield for a second time, which was a huge blow for Wilkerson.
0: But what about F.F. Jones? Just because Mansfield was innocent doesn't mean F.F. Jones was innocent. Maybe he hired somebody else to kill the Moors.
1: Wilkerson didn't have any evidence connecting F.F. to the murders. And since Wilkerson's witnesses had already been discredited during Mansfield's grand jury investigation, authorities were uninterested in pursuing a case against a seemingly innocent man. They had their sights set on a far more intriguing suspect. Who? Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly.
0: Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
1: And now, back to Unsolved Murders.
0: On the night of the murders, Reverend Kelly watched the Moore and Stillinger children perform in the church play.
1: He was a strange, scrawny-looking fellow at five foot two and one hundred and nineteen pounds. His behavior was even stranger than his appearance.
0: Kelly brought suspicion unto himself through his obsession with the axe murders. During the summer of the murders, he wrote dozens of letters to the victim's family members and the attorney general and the Burns Detective Agency.
1: Kelly knew so many details about the case that investigators began to wonder if he knew so much because he was, in
0: fact, the murderer. Kelly brought even more attention to himself through an advertisement he placed in the papers for a stenographer.
1: A high school girl replied to the advertisement and was horrified by what Kelly wanted her to do. she quickly told her pastor
7: i don't know what to do i thought i was simply applying for a job as a stenographer for mr kelly but then he started making all of these demands
0: uh like what
7: he wanted me to type in the nude
0: the girl's pastor informed investigators who posing as the girl wrote to kelly they asked for more details Kelly's responses were so sexually explicit that he was charged with sending obscene material through the mail.
1: Sounds like an early 1900s version of To Catch a Predator.
0: It pretty much was. And when Kelly was arrested, he said something rather suspicious. No! No!
1: Reverend Kelly, you need to come with us.
0: Don't take me back to Iowa! Why would he be scared of going back to Iowa? Mm,
1: a guilty conscience, perhaps. And as if Kelly's behavior wasn't suspicious enough, he was also a known pervert and window peeper. He was caught a week before the Vallisca murders
0: spying on a married woman changing in her bedroom. That's certainly reprehensible behavior, But I'm not sure that proves Kelly was the axe murderer. But Kelly's
1: history of sexual perversion does potentially explain why the murderer removed Lena Stillinger's undergarments and repositioned her body after he murdered her. In fact, that's why authorities charged Kelly only with the murder of Lena Stillinger.
0: That's still awfully circumstantial.
1: What about the fact that Kelly sent a bloody shirt to the laundry right after the murders?
0: Maybe he cut himself shaving?
1: Or maybe he was the killer. And there was more evidence connecting Kelly to the axe killings, like the fact that investigators believed the murderer was left-handed. Was Kelly left-handed? Investigators wanted to find out. After arresting Kelly for the murder of Lena Stillinger, they asked him if he'd like some exercise. How would you like to chop some wood? All right. Here, why don't you use this axe? I'll be damned. He really is left-handed.
0: Still seems
1: circumstantial. What about the fact that Kelly returned to Villisca a few weeks after the murders and pretended to be a member of Scotland Yard so that he could view the
0: crime scene? Ew, that's bizarre. But it also might explain why Kelly knew so much about the murders.
1: Or it might be Kelly wanting to view his handiwork. In fact, an elderly couple who rode with Kelly on the train the morning of June 10th in 1912 testified that he told them about the murders before the bodies were discovered.
0: Ooh, that's definitely a strike against Kelly's
1: innocence. After Kelly was arrested, he was interrogated extensively by investigators, who shouted at him and threatened him in attempts to get him to confess. His cellmates also urged him to confess.
0: Kelly had no idea that the alleged criminals sharing his cell were really a reporter and a deputy, both eager to prove Kelly's guilt.
1: After a long night of interrogations and conversations with his stool pigeon cellmates, Kelly broke down and confessed and his confession was horrific. He claimed to hear the voice of God telling him to slay utterly. Sounds like a slam dunk case for the prosecutors. It might have been, except for one man determined to prove Kelly was innocent, Detective Wilkerson.
0: Wilkerson and his supporters, who included the victim's family members, (laughs) still fervently believed that F.F. Jones was the one behind the murders.
1: Bitter lines were drawn through the town of Villisca over who people believed was the murderer, Reverend Kelly or Frank Jones.
0: Neighbor turned against neighbor, friend against friend, Methodists against Presbyterians. Wilkerson was willing to do anything in his power to prove that F.F. Jones was the murderer and that Kelly was innocent. So he raised money and hired Ed Mitchell as Kelly's defense lawyer.
1: Well, just as Ed Mitchell had managed to turn a slander case against Wilkerson into a murder case against F.F. Jones, he similarly transformed a seemingly slam dunk case against Kelly into an impossible case to win.
0: Witnesses at Kelly's trial were trying to recall things that had happened five years ago. It became all too easy for Ed Mitchell to poke holes in their stories.
4: Is Kelly's shirt the only bloody shirt you've ever washed at your laundry?
7: No. Sometimes people cut themselves shaving.
4: So how do you know that the blood on Kelly's shirt wasn't there because he cut himself shaving?
7: I guess he could have cut himself.
4: Are you even sure that the red stain on his shirt was blood?
7: I didn't test it. I thought it was blood.
4: But you're not sure. What if it was ketchup?
7: I guess I don't know for sure.
4: Are you absolutely certain of the week you shared a train ride with Reverend Kelly in June of 1912? We have proof that Kelly visited Veliska two weeks after the murders. What if, in fact, you rode with him then?
0: I suppose that's possible. But even if the witnesses weren't reliable, what about Kelly's confession?
1: Kelly had bruises on his face that convinced the jury he may have given his confession under duress. Thanks to the lack of hard evidence and Ed Mitchell's skillful defense, Kelly walked away a free man.
0: But if F. F. Jones and Kelly didn't commit the axe murders, then who did?
1: There's always the possibility of a serial killer.
0: Do you mean William Mansfield supposedly hired by Frank Jones to take out the Moors? He had an alibi.
1: I'm actually referring to a series of axe murders that took place in the Midwest between 1911 and 1912. Many of the crime scenes contained disturbing similarities to the crime scene at the Moore house.
0: Like what?
1: Just like the Moores and Stillinger children, the victims in most of these murders died in their beds. In several of the crime scenes, the killer covered victims' faces with pieces of cloth and left lamps with their chimneys removed. At one crime scene, a telephone had been covered with a pile of clothing. Ooh. Sort of like how the murder in Veliska covered the mirrors. Well, maybe he really was scared, as victims could use mirrors and telephones to haunt him. Overall there were at least 10 axe murders that took place close to railway tracks like in Villisca.
0: So each time it would be easy for the killer to make a quick
1: getaway. And if the serial killer was traveling by rail, it would explain why there were axe murders that stretched from Illinois all the way to Washington.
0: Special Agent McClowry first noticed the similarities in the killings in 1913.
1: He believed the serial killer's final victims were Georgia Moore and her mother, Mary Wilson, who were murdered in Missouri in 1912.
0: But then who was the killer?
1: Well, Mary Wilson and Georgia Moore were killed by Georgia's son, Henry Lee Moore. And despite their similar last name, he wasn't related to Joe Moore's family in Vallisca.
0: Why would Henry Moore kill his own mother and his grandmother? In the days leading up to the murders, Moore had been
1: spending a lot of money on his girlfriends.
6: Thank you for the hat, darling. It must have cost you a pretty penny.
1: Don't worry. I'll be coming into some money soon.
4: In fact, I think I may open up a boarding house. If I did,
1: would you be able to run it?
6: I would be glad to. I could support my children with that money. Then
1: I'll make sure there's a job for you. Moore's mother's house was worth around $500 to $600, which was over $12,000 in 1912. But Henry Moore couldn't sell the house if his mother and grandmother were still living in it. So he got them out of the way. He was convicted for the murders of his mother and grandmother and sent to prison for the next several decades.
0: I believe Henry Moore killed his relatives, but what evidence do you have that he's a serial killer?
1: The axe murders started in 1911, not long after Henry Moore was released from prison where he'd been serving time for fraud. The axe murders stopped in 1912, right after Henry Moore was arrested for killing his mother and grandmother with
0: an axe. Even so, I'm not so sure I buy it. Moore had a motive to kill his mother and grandmother. He wanted the money. If Henry Moore killed people for their money, then why didn't he steal anything from the Moore family in Villisca when he killed them?
1: Mm, You have a point there.
0: There's also nothing connecting Henry Moore to the strange ritual of covering mirrors and telephones with clothing.
1: Well, maybe Henry Moore didn't kill the Moore family and the Stillinger girls in Villisca. Maybe there was another serial killer at work.
0: And maybe that serial killer was never caught. For years, Veliskins remained divided over the axe murders. Frank Jones
1: was never officially charged with murder, but his political career and reputation were destroyed by Wilkerson. He lost his re-election campaign to the Senate and resigned from his position at the bank.
0: But was F.F. Jones a murderer? Or did Wilkerson ruin the life of an innocent man?
1: There was no evidence to support F.F. being the killer, especially with William Mansfield's alibi. I don't think he was guilty.
0: I agree, but what about Reverend Kelly? Was he the killer?
1: Well, he's definitely a more likely candidate than F.F. Jones. But all the evidence against him was circumstantial.
0: But Kelly had so much evidence against him. He had witnesses who he told about the crime before the bodies were found. He had a bloody shirt that he dropped off at the laundry right after the murders. And most important of all... He confessed to the killings.
1: Only under duress. And Kelly's obvious mental illness makes his confession unreliable. Hmm. I think the culprit was a serial killer.
0: I think Kelly is a more likely murderer of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls than Henry Lee Moore. Moore had a financial incentive to kill his mother and grandmother. There was no financial motive for him to kill the Moores in Villisca.
1: Then perhaps the murderer was a different serial killer most likely one with a deep fear of ghosts and the supernatural.
0: If so, that makes this ending all the more tragic since it means that investigators never caught the killer. The police may not have caught the killer, but some believe they still have the chance to uncover his identity.
1: To this day, people visit the Moore family home in Villisca, looking for signs that the Moore family and the Stillinger girls linger, wondering if they will at long last reveal the identity of their killer.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at ParCast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Next Tuesday, we'll investigate the case of Johnny Stompanato. Thanks
1: for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: If we live till next time
1: unsolved murders true crime stories was created by max cutler is a production of cutler media and is part of the Parcast network it is produced by ron and max cutler sound designed by ron shapiro and kenny hobbs with production assistance by maggie admire and written by jeanette manning unsolved murders true crime stories stars carter roy and wendy mckenzie the amazing cast of voice actors includes by alphabetical order Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Harris Markson, Sammy Nye, and Steve Pinto.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of shocking murder mysteries, episodes you won't hear anywhere else, by following Unsolved Murders free and only on Spotify.